so encouraging. I have uh, weeks like uh, everybody where you're, you feel frustrated with yourself, and it's such a, a great, grateful reality to remember that my identity is that God loved me, and he sees me through the sacrifice of Jesus, and he sees me cleansed and forgiven. That's, such a, that's the heartbeat of our belief, our understanding, our faith. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, and we're going to look there at verses 1 through 13. We've been going verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, and so uh, we will return here in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, pick up where we've been, and uh, the scripture here says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpent. Nor murmur as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may, may be able to bear it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you again that we're reminded that you loved us so much that you gave us a timeless, eternal word that we again and again can go to to understand your heart and purpose. And we pray now that you'll speak to us from it, and we love you and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll advance this slide, uh, this was this past Christmas. Yeah, guess what that is? So I'll wrap that for a family member. Of course, it's a coffee cup. Obvious guy says, I don't know. Some things should be obvious to us, I would say. And one of those uh, things that should be obvious is that what should follow God's blessing is praise. Right? When God blesses us, what should issue forth from our life is praise and thanksgiving. And everybody's blessed. Uh, because you know, I was reflecting on yesterday, driving out of our neighborhood, the way that God cares for us and the trees that are in our neighborhood are a part of the process that God uses to give oxygen so you and I can breathe in and out and live. So often people take God, uh, his blessings for granted, but he, he blesses us nonetheless. And so it should be obvious to every person that what follows blessing is praise, is worship, is witness to who God is and what God's done. But when we read this example from Scripture today, what we notice is that that's not what happened in the case of the people of Israel. 
And Paul is talking to the a covenant people because that's what a church or a community of believers is. It's a covenant people. A people who are under covenant. And covenant just means promise. We've agreed on certain realities that God's revealed and that we follow. And the realities that he's revealed to us are about the idea of belonging to God, that God calls us into a relationship with himself through faith. So we belong to God, but we also in a church community belong to one another. So we're part of a faith family. And the premise that we have when we make an agreement, when we come under a covenant as a group of believers, is that we're helping each other toward holiness, right? That's who we are. God calls us to be a holy people. He says in 1 Peter, as I'm holy, you also are to be holy. And so my responsibility and commitment to you and your commitment to one another is that we're going to try to help each other to work out our salvation, our, the sanctification, that walk in holiness together. So my, I'm going to encourage you and you're going to encourage me when we understand what God has called us to. Well, we, So far in 1 Corinthians, what we've seen is that they're uneven at best, right? Because they are characterized by immaturity. Some of that looks like uh, divisiveness. We, as we went through some of the early chapters, we saw that they say things like, I belong to uh, the, the uh, Peter party, Simon Peter. I, I identify with Peter. I identify with Paul. I identify with Christ. But underneath that was a divisiveness that was unhealthy to congregational life. So you had that sort of manifestation of immaturity. Some of them had uh, little baby consciences and scruples that were legalistic. And so they, they judged others and, and were limited in their understanding of freedom. But at the same time, others were judging the uh, weak among them and, and were severe toward their brothers and sisters in Christ. So what we notice is in that congregation is that it was characterized by a sort of expected immaturity. Because when you come to faith in Christ, there's a process. And some of it is exactly what we've already heard in our uh, worship service today. Obedience. Obedience is what moves us on in uh, forming our lives in the image of Jesus Christ. And so they were experiencing what you would expect, bumpiness, unevenness, but you don't live there forever. You know, the longer that we know Christ, it is expected the more that we'll be conformed to his likeness. So we'll understand the scripture, internalize it, and live it out in everything that we encounter in life. So an unfortunate truth is that one of the ways that God grows people is through stressful situations. It's just a, a fact that God wants to use the chaos in our lives at times to cause us to respond properly to, to Him and to who He is. So when we read this passage, we notice that it takes us back to the wilderness experience of the people of Israel. And, and Paul says, here's an illustration that's instructive. It'll help you to know how to be the people of God if you notice what they did and learn from them. So that's what this chapter really is. It teaches us that sometimes you're going to experience stress in your life. Anybody experiencing stress? Of course you are. I mean, because it happens if 
your life feels normal, praise God, you know, because it so seldom feels that way. Often there are disruptions that occur in our life. It may, it may be that something unexpected happens, and sometimes it lasts for a long season. And we're like, okay, God, what are you doing in the middle of this unexpected disruption? What can I learn? If we're wise, that's what will last. What can I learn? What is it that you want to teach me? And so how do we experience awe when life feels awful? Sometimes life feels awful. But what, what we want is to, what did we say in the beginning? We want to see what should be obvious to us, that what follows blessing is praise in our life is blessed and sometimes even uh, when we don't we don't think it is because our circumstances have become hard so what we see in this passage to begin with is that we can learn from others uh, history learn from their history that's what Paul says here you know I don't want you to be unaware I don't want you to be ignorant of this uh, history of these people and how you learn through it well how it benefits you so he talks about the illustration of the Israelites and we remember that these were people who had gone down into Egypt and became slaves in a process of hundreds of years. And while they were in Egypt, they were mistreated and eventually God raises up Moses. And God has an overarching purpose through the nation of Israel that he's working out even in that, their captivity. And so God raises up the deliverer, Moses, who had been brought up in Pharaoh's household. And God uses Moses to lead these people through the plagues. If you've read Exodus and you remember in that narrative that God judges Egypt because they mistreat his people. And over and over again different plagues occur leading up to uh, the, the Nile River is turned to blood. The, the uh, scripture teaches us that there were intensifying events that happened to the Egyptians so that Pharaoh would be convinced eventually to say to those people, you're free to leave. And so finally that's what occurs. The, uh, the last and most severe and intense plague was that the firstborn of all of the households in Egypt, was, the firstborn son would die. And that, that happens. And God institutes the Passover, which it points us forward to what Jesus would do, that Jesus would come and he would be the fulfillment of that Passover lamb. And his blood would be shed so that the remission of sins could happen. So Jesus is pictured there. And then we become those who are blessed through his offering of himself, his sacrifice. But God uses those people as an illustration, the covenant community that he brings out of captivity. And immediately, they're in the wilderness, camping, okay? I was talking to somebody about this earlier. I've never had an experience camping that was a happy one. It's the wettest day on record. It's the coldest day on record. There are most mosquitoes that ever have been anywhere, hottest, whatever. I'm in the littlest tent because I don't own camping stuff. That's what happens when I go camping. And so these people are just camping for 40 years. <laughs> that's what happened. They leave Israel. That wasn't God's purpose, but that's what happened, is they got stuck between the place that God intended for them to be and where they actually were. They got stuck. And, and a lot of the reason that they were stuck is because they responded poorly to stress and to testing. And that's all that this passage is talking about, is testing, temptation. 
What do we do when things are difficult? How do we respond? Well, they responded badly as a group over and over again. And so they basically were stuck in the place that they were. So with Israel, here's what we can see from this passage. It says that when they left Egypt, God, it it describes them as being under the cloud. What does that mean? Well, if you go back and you read in uh, uh, the Pentateuch, Exodus, uh, Numbers especially, you find the narrative there of how these people were, were protected and led by a cloud that represent God's, uh, represented His presence. So at one point, when they leave, there's the Red Sea in front of them. And the Red Sea represents a barrier between them because Pharaoh keeps changing his mind. And after the people have been released out of Egypt and they're running, fleeing, Pharaoh begins to pursue them with chariots and armies and and they panic. And God puts a cloud between them and Pharaoh for a little while. And then he parts the Red Sea. It talks about, that's what all this is describing, this cloud that represented God's presence and his protection, and a pillar, a column of fire. It says by, by day there was a pillar of cloud. By night there was a pillar of fire. And it was God's direction and God's presence with them, visible, that they experienced. This is, you know, their privilege. That's a privilege. How would you like to tell people, well, it's easy to find my church. Just follow, there's a pillar of cloud, or there's a pillar, a column of fire, just go there. That's where we are. That was their privilege. That's what happened for them. That God gave them this column of fire and protected them, a visible manifestation and an evidence that He was with them. And if that weren't enough, they'd already seen all these miracles, right? They'd seen everything God did back in Egypt how God was uh, leading them and caring for them, and he sent them out with unbelievable wealth. Everything they need. Not only that, but in the wilderness, the Bible says their sandals never wore out, their clothing never wore out the whole time. God cared for them. We, we see this manifest evidence of his leadership and protection. They passed through the Red Sea as on dry ground, the Scripture says. So when the Bible here says they... Uh, Our fathers were under the cloud. They passed through the sea. That's what it's talking about, the Red Sea. It it says it opened up in heaps, and they went through the middle of that on dry ground. And then Pharaoh's armies attempting to follow them were swallowed up and drowned. And it was clearly a miracle that God performed on their behalf to preserve a nation of people that would be a kingdom, a priest for him, that Christ would come to us through. And and this is what God was doing on their behalf. They passed through the Red Sea. And it says they all ate the same spiritual food because when they get out there in the wilderness, they're working with the elements and they they always are what? Complaining, right? Murmuring, griping. Aren't you glad people aren't like that anymore? I mean, that's what they, they, the first thing they do. Anytime they encounter stress is they begin to complain and murmur against God. Did you bring us out here because there were no graves in Egypt? That's the kind of stuff they said. They're like poetically mean toward 
you know, Moses, it seems like, when you read the things they say. And Moses is like, these people are ready to stone me out here. And all I'm doing is trying to lead them to what's better, you know, what God's provision and purpose is for them down the way. It says they were baptized into Moses. Well, what what does it mean to be baptized into Moses? They identified with him as the leader. They were, he was their pastor. And I think about poor Moses. You know, sometimes he's standing out there, and at one point the Bible says there are about a million people that left uh, Egypt and were going to the land that God promised them. And often what he did was stand outside uh, his tent and listen to complaints all day long from about a million people. So that sounds like so much fun to be Moses. He's there, but he's their leader. Here we are, you know, 3,500 plus years later, we remember Moses as an incredible leader. In fact, the Bible says about Moses that he was the most humble man who ever lived. It's always interesting to me that that's in the Pentateuch that Moses wrote. You know, by the way, I'm the most humble. But God told Moses, or a redactor put that in there, But we know historically he was, you know, I'm kidding, but he was, according to Scripture, the most humble man that ever lived. That's who these people had for their pastor, for their leader. It's privilege. That's what it speaks to over and over and over again. Privilege. That they were incredibly blessed. But did they praise? No, they did not praise. They they were given, I, I posted on our Facebook page this week, that if you wanted to prepare, you should read Psalm 78, and I know some of you did. But Psalm 78 is a commentary on what happened here, on this experience with these, uh, these people. And basically, it just recounts how blessed they were and how messed up their response was. And it, it, but one of the things that it says in Psalm 78, you know, they, the people didn't have food, so God gave them manna. And manna in Psalm 78 is described as the food of angels. God gave them the food of angels to eat. So God rains down for them provision every day. All they have to do is six days a week go out and pick it up and use it. And they, but what do they do? Are they satisfied with manna? No, of course not. They start to complain because they don't have any meat. It's not enough just to have the food of angels. You know, we need meat too, so... The Bible says God rained down quail. He caused a wind to blow. And the wind blew quail into camp until it came out of their noses. That's what the Bible said. Before they even swallowed it, the Bible says that God began to affect them because he was sick of their lack of worship. The fact that they could so easily overlook again and again the incredible blessings of God and settle into such a mediocre or worse than that, state of being inside themselves. So they're under stress for sure, but every response that the people have collectively, with the exception of a very few people, is the wrong response all the time. So God provides for them. At some point, they're thirsty in the journey. Of course, they are. They're in the desert. And the Bible says that there was a rock there, and that God told Moses to strike the rock, and water gushed forth out of the rock and the people were were cared for and provided for and a second time God told Moses speak to the rock but in his anger Moses strikes the rock 
And the Bible tell, tells us why it was a grievous sin that Moses committed and his frustration. We can imagine that he would be frustrated. But in his frustration, he was disqualified from going into the promised land because he acted out in anger, under stress himself. And, but the water still pours out of the rock, but the Bible says that rock was Christ. It was a type, a visual uh, prefiguring of Christ, just like the Passover lamb was, because Jesus said about himself, whoever thirsts, let him come to me, and out of me pour, will pour forth waters of living water, so that whoever drinks will never thirst again. So the picture here is you speak, you strike the rock first because Christ was was struck, Christ was punished. But you speak to it because then he's intercessor. That he's intercessor. You don't need to strike the rock again because he's already been punished. And, that, and so I think God causes Moses not to go into the promised land because even though it caused attention to it, it messed up this type that God intended for us to see. That Jesus is punished, then he's intercessor. Once he's punished, he's punished once and for all time. That's what the scripture teaches. And then he ever lives to make intercession for those that, that cry out to him and those that need him. But we, we, we see that they, at Meribah, that's when it seems like everything sort of falls apart. In Psalm 78, and the people there, you know, complain and God's had enough of it. But then it says, I like one, the paraphrase the message says, most of them were defeated by temptation during the hard times in the desert, and God was not pleased. He had a purpose. His purpose was that in this duress, these people would be shaped and formed and become more the people of God. But what happened is they became less the people of God, most of them. And the Bible says that a whole generation of human beings who left Egypt, that all the adults, none of the adults made it into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb who were faithful. But everybody else, nobody else of that generation, only a younger generation made it into the land of promise because they responded poorly. They didn't inherit the promise, the scripture says. So the Bible says here, these things became examples, our examples to the intent that we should not and then it gives us a list of things we should not. And, and because we see this is what they did. They lusted after evil things. So they desired and pursued things that were clearly marked out of bounds by God. God is going to say to them, there are certain things that are out of bounds to you. And we know what they are by reading God's word. And, and, but the people disobeyed God. There's a... Interesting illustration I always thought in Deuteronomy where God told the people always their homes were flat they, they, because of where they lived, the way they constructed a home. So the Deuteronomy says build a low wall, parapet it was called, on top of your house. Why? So that you won't be uh, guilty of, uh, you won't be guilty of another person's blood. In other words, somebody won't accidentally fall off the roof of your house because it's flat and it could easily happen. And that's kind of what the scripture is uh, like when it gives you and I boundaries in our life. We, we're the kind of people that are like, no, we want to do what we want. We want to live life without any boundaries, especially Westerners. We think that everything should always be wide open to us and we can decide ourselves. 
do whatever we want. But God puts limits on human behavior in the same, for the same reason He said put a wall on top of your house so that you don't injure yourself. God says if you go out here, you're not safe. So the people were deciding for themselves what was safe and unsafe and they found out that God won't be mocked. Like the scripture says, God's not mocked. Whatever person sows, he'll also reap. So if you transcend his boundaries, the possibility is that you will do yourself harm. And it's not an expression of God being a bully or mean. It's because he loves us and he knows, like, this is where it's safe. Stay here. But they didn't, and the Bible says they lusted after evil things. They became idolaters. You remember this situation? Moses goes up on the mountain to uh, get the tablets from God. While he's gone, he's gone a long time. They say, we don't know what happened to this Moses guy. We want something to worship. And so Aaron, Moses' brother, gathers up all the gold and he fashions for them a, a golden calf. And the golden calf becomes a problem for a long, long time in Israel. But they, when Moses comes down, he hears the sound and it's revelry and it's basically a, a, a party and not a good one. And they, he finds that the people are worshiping this golden calf and always love Aaron. How, what happened? Well, we put this stuff in the fire and this calf came out. We don't know how it happened. Like, right. That's exactly what happened. But Moses, of course, is destroyed by the, what's happened in his absence and how fickle the people are. And they become idolaters. They fashioned for themselves a poor God substitute and made their priority something other than God. Where the scripture says to us, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and you'll have all that you need if you do that. Seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, and everything you need will be added to you. But they couldn't live with that. They couldn't live with the real God. And the, the scripture says that they committed sexual immorality. When you read the scripture, it says that there's a, a respite where they, you know, almost always sexual immorality is rationalization, justification, objectifying some other person, and that's what they did. They're like, man, all this work in the desert and wilderness, we need uh, reprieve, and they act out with, with uh, the Moabites and are judged by God because they're destroying their witness. That's what they're doing. And the scripture says, Hebrews thirteen four, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled. That's what the Bible says. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled. And they just commit another form of idolatry. And the scripture says, Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them tempted Christ. How did they tempt Christ? Because the Bible says all of the things that were happening were part of this rich story that God was telling throughout all history that culminated in Jesus and that Jesus is the rock that follows him, and Jesus is the Passover lamb, and that Christ is fully represented, and, and everything that they do when they disobey God, and they turn their back on God, is tempting Christ. When they complain against God, it's tempting Christ. That's what he says. He says they tempted, they tempted Christ. They traded on the mercy of God. God had been incredibly merciful in his provision for them, but they just kept forgetting. In fact, if you read Psalm 78, it says there, they did not remember his power. That was their problem. They didn't remember God's care. 
that's where I find myself sometimes is like in a place where I forget how good God is and I have to go, wait a minute, time out. Somebody, I said this before here, but called complaining and grumbling halitosis of the soul. I think that's a good way of expressing it. It's like what's inside of me that's coming out of me, that's coming from my soul. And what should be coming from me is gratitude because I don't care what's going on in our life. If we stop and, and think about it closely enough, we're incredibly blessed. And, and what should be coming out of us is not complaint but worship. And the next thing that it says is exactly that, that they murmured, they grumbled, they had a bad attitude, they were ungrateful and rebellious. And the problem with that too is that if we grumble and complain, other people are affected by that. You're not just grumbling and complaining to yourself. The people closest to us are affected by our murmuring and complaining. And there's a better way. The Bible says that uh, we should pray. Instead, don't be anxious, for, uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the Bible says, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through, through Jesus Christ. So the Bible gives us the antidote. When, I'm, when I feel overwhelmed by fear, anxious because of my circumstances, what it says I should do instead of complaining and murmuring all the negative stuff I'm tempted to do is to pray to God, to bring my needs to God, specifically calling those things out and working through them with Him, and He provides the peace that we need. And the Bible says these things happened and, uh, and were written, they happened as examples and were written for our admonition. So in other words, we should learn from history. We should learn from their history. But secondly, if you'll go to that uh, second slide, what we see is that we should uh, remain vigilant. Vigilant. Keep our uh, antenna up. In verse 12 it says, um, all these things happen to them as examples. Verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we have to be vigilant. Temptation is what happens, you know, in this idea that he's communicating to this congregation when a person is, is not properly aware. So we're, we're blindsided when we have a wrong self-appraisal. We think it couldn't happen to us. Anyone who ends up sabotaging their own life overestimated their self at some point. It comes from isolating ourselves and not being accountable to other people, so when we lack accountability, when we function in isolation, possibility is that our discipleship is going to go off the path. If we want a remedy that gives immediate relief but increases complications down the road, all that's what sin is and does. Sin gives immediate relief, but out here down the way, complications, messed up stuff. And so the Bible says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed. In other words, if you think you're impervious, that could never happen to me. I'd never cheat on my spouse. Yeah, I'd never take a a catastrophic detour into some place I shouldn't be. The Bible says, whoever thinks like that is not sufficiently aware of their humanity. Of course, that's an illustration. We think about Peter in Scripture. 
that. You remember Peter, that he, he basically fell in the area of his perceived strength when Jesus uh, is talking to all the disciples. Peter says, the rest of these guys may turn your back on, uh, their back on you, but I never will. But what happened to Peter? The Bible says, Jesus said to him, for the rooster crows three times, you'll deny that you ever knew me. And then he did deny with cursing. So he fell exactly in the area of his perceived strength. So the Bible is just saying here, look, be aware, be cautious. It's reckless to believe. I think Randy Alcorn maybe said this, that he says, am I more godly than David? Do you think you're more godly than the psalm writer? A man after God's own heart? But what happened to David? Catastrophe, right? I mean, we remember that like the end for him could have been better. And, and we can think about that. Are you stronger than Samson? No. Are you wiser than Solomon? No, he's the wisest man. People came from everywhere to talk to Solomon, to get wisdom from him. But he made a mess out of his life. And that's what the point is, is that we can easily make a mess out of our life if we're not humble, alert, connected, and thankful. Thankful is a big key. Connected is a big key. We can fall too. Satan is a patient thief. A patient thief. The Bible says the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. But he's a patient thief. He'll wait and often, you know, I think he wins through attrition. Attrition is a gradual wearing away. It happens over a long period of time and, and, the, and the person, you know, would have never thought that they'd be where they, where they are. He's crafty and relentless. One uh, place Paul says, we're not ignorant of his devices. And it's, a, it's the word we get strategy from. We're not ignorant of his strategy, that he's wily. And he's real, by the way, too. Just in the Christian theology, as we believe in God, we believe in an adversary created by God and fallen and opposing the work of God. So it, it, the Bible says he's real. There are malignant forces in the, in the world that oppose the work of God in the life of believers and in, in the world at large. The Bible says about Jesus, you remember that Jesus was tested. The Bible says he went up into the mountain and he fasted for 40 days and night. At the end of his temptation, uh, or at the end of his fasting, he was tempted by Satan. And of course, Satan failed. But it says in the Gospel of Luke that he departed for a more opportune time. He didn't give up. He didn't quit. He says, this didn't work this time, but I'll be back. And that's what he's like in our life. He'll be back. And so vigilance is, is uh, what we need. The Bible says, see then that you walked circumspectly. The word means carefully. Not as fools. But is wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. In other words, the opportunity for moral failure is everywhere around you all the time. Better keep your eyes open, be alert. Peter himself said, or wrote in Scripture, be sober, be vigilant, he says, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He knew that, right? Because Jesus said to him, Satan has asked for you, asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. And he was sifted. So vigilance is, is an incredible part of 
what it means to persevere through temptation and to get through stress where there's always going to be temptation to make bad decisions and come out with praise and a testimony. But then the last part of this in verse 13, recognize God's plan to fight temptation. The Bible says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. In other words, you, if you, it, sometimes we feel, again, isolated. We think, I'm the only person that knows what it feels like to be in the middle of something like this. But the Bible says, no, you're not. No, you're not. There's nothing that you're going to be tempted by that everybody else or somebody else isn't also experiencing as an enticement to do the wrong thing when they're experiencing duress. Somebody else is experiencing the same temptation that you are. So that helps me to know. And I've got friends that you know I can talk to. So I know that there's a commonality in the struggle that sometimes we face in fleshing out our discipleship and obeying the Lord. The Bible says that Peter, Peter wrote this, 1 Peter 5, 9, Resist him, that is the adversary that he just talked about, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the uh, same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the, world, in the world. That's helpful to me to know that. If I want to please God, if I want to honor God, that I'm going to experience uh, static and difficulty and temptation, and yet I'm not alone. I'm not on an island. There are other people that are going through the same thing that I'm going through. I just need to find them, you know, and that's one reason that community matters so much is that we find people and we find brothers and sisters that, that are a blessing to us. And, uh, and also a reason that we need to practice transparency and authenticity with people. I'm not going to tell everybody in the world my struggles and issues. I'm going to tell somebody. I'm going to have some friends that I trust. Somebody in my life that I can tell the whole truth to. And everybody needs that. And I think one of the problems at church is that we often project to everybody how much we've got it together. You know, that we don't struggle with anything, that it's all fine all the time. But nobody lives like that. Not really. And it's helpful to know that. Yes, we're moving in this direction, hopefully toward holiness and progress and sanctification, but there's a lot of struggling and stuff that's happening along the way. And we need people. I think about David. You think about David. David went up, uh, he should have been off at war in the spring of the year when kings went off to war. He should have gone too, but he didn't. And there's a, a failure that we see automatically. Something was out of kilter with David. The king, uh, King David in the Old Testament. And he goes up on top of the palace at night and he sees Bathsheba. And we don't know if it's the first time he saw her bathing or not. But we know that's what he saw. And you know what he should have done? He should have picked up the phone and called Nathan. Hey, Nathan, I want to tell you something, brother. I saw something. It rattled me. It made me think things I shouldn't be thinking. And then out here, it's a different conversation with Nathan, right? But that's not what happened. What happened is that David kept his stuff hidden and swept under the rug. And consequently, there was catastrophe that affected not only David, but David's family. The Bible is really heavy in this stuff that it's trying to help us salvage and save our own lives. He says, uh, Scripture here says, No temptation 
has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. God is faithful. He won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able, but with every temptation he'll make a way of escape, it says. That way of escape may be what was mentioned earlier, Psalm 119.11. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. That's a way of escape. The way of escape is I know God said don't. It's off limits. I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. It may be that it's the way of escape is in my, my network of friends, my confidence, my trust, trustworthy people that I know I can speak to. The Bible says, 1 John 1, 7, that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I love that passage. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I think what it really is saying is fellowship means, or like walking in the light means that we have fellowship with one another. We have people. There's somebody that I can talk with in my life. And if you don't have that, you need to find it. Somebody. It may be your spouse. I hope so. I hope your spouse knows everything about you. But there's got to be some people in our life that we know that they know us. They know our whole story. Lies lose their power when they come into the light. When you bring a lie into the light... Shame goes out of it. All the power that holds that over you is destroyed. And that's what Satan hates. But we, we bring our stuff into the light with people that we trust. Sometimes what I've, you know, I think that when the Bible talks about a way of escape, it means a strategy. We need a strategy. If I'm defeated again and again in the same way, I need to talk to somebody that can coach me and help me out of that. Maybe a counselor. A therapist, somebody that can say, I'm looking at this objectively. I've seen this a hundred thousand times. Here's what you need to do. Here's what will help you out. If you're stuck in the same pattern and you know that it violates God's best for you. And the temptation in this passage is a word that means to test or prove. It has no negative connotation. Temptation in the Bible does sometimes mean an enticement to uh, a wicked desire. But when the Bible talks about testing, it's neutral in the sense that it usually is something that's happening in our, in our duress and our stress and that we need a plan for. Prayer and journaling help me. Prayer and journaling help me. They're indispensable to me in my fight for a holy life. This is good advice. My former pastor said this uh, back when he said when you feel like praying the least you probably need prayer the most that's what I find is sometimes I'm like man I feel so lazy I don't want to pray you better pray that's when you need to pray just because we have some formative spiritual experience in our past that's no assurance that we won't respond badly under uh, stress look at these people they could not have had more privileges than they had and yet when Everything mattered. They performed horribly. They didn't perform well. And it cost them in their journey. I absolutely believe God preserves people who are His. I also know that like the last chapter we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter, at the end of chapter 9, He said it's possible for your influence to take a hit through the lack of discipline. 
Well, one thing we saw in this passage is that Christ is the rock. And that through him, what's available to us are rivers of living water. So when we think about how are we going to make this, how, how are we going to you know, uh, persevere in holiness and godliness, he sustains us. He's the eternal fount for us of living water to quench and to satisfy again and again. And that's true because he took our place on the cross and was resurrected from the dead so that we have a savior and a source i want to pray for us we're going to have a time of commitment as our musicians are coming and it may be today that as you've listened god's made something really obvious in your life as a response that you need and i'll be happy to pray with you during our uh, commitment time or to make an appointment to talk with you and spend some time with you and and, uh, try to help you as, as a as much as I can, or or our elders. Jonathan, who stood up uh, to do our offering this morning as one of our elders and others in our congregation, our elders will be happy to uh, meet with you and help you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the scripture.